Everyone and welcome to episode nine of Staying Local. It's late December, and like you, we are really looking forward to our Christmas break here at Rice Spear. It's been a tough year, COVID nineteen. Thanks for that. Everyone deserves a break, and perhaps more so this year when one thinks about the challenges not only with the pandemic, but also some of the natural disasters that have struck our local government community, most recently in Napier with the flood. We wish everyone a safe, peaceful and disaster-free holiday. This episode is once again proudly brought to you by our friends at Maynard Marks, working to ensure that every building in New Zealand is safe, healthy and sustainable. You can learn more at maynardmarks.co.nz. In this episode, Helen spoke with John Edwards, who was appointed to the independent statutory position of Privacy Commissioner in February 2014. John is currently serving his second five-year term. He provides independent comment on significant personal information policies and issues. Prior to his appointment, John practiced law in Wellington for over 20 years, specialising in information law while representing a wide range of public and private sector clients. He's had an impressive career acting in legal roles for the Ministry of Health, State Services Commission, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and Inland Revenue. For 15 years, John held a warrant as a District Inspector for Mental Health and has also been a District Inspector for Intellectual Disability Services. It's a fascinating conversation that Helen has had, and we hope you enjoy. Merry Christmas, everyone, and we'll see you in 2021. Kia ora, John. Welcome to our Rice Spear podcast, and thank you for agreeing to be interviewed. I'm sitting in Wellington with you, looking out to the harbour. Bit of a rough landing, have to say. A little bit of wind in the air, but you know, nothing that you wouldn't expect from a beautiful Wellington day. Thank you for being here. Nice to see you. Yeah. So, six years, 2014, you were appointed to the independent statutory position of Privacy Commissioner, and you're currently serving your second five year term. That's right. So, let's start with the basics. What are the highlights? Ha. Um, you know me, I like to deep dive. Sure. Uh, well, you know, there are highlights in all aspects of the work. You know, we've issued some reports that have affected the lives of you know, a whole lot of New Zealanders um, and changed practices that improve privacy for people. Uh, I've seen my staff work on individual complaints where um, people have been really disempowered and hurt by the actions of an agency uh, and we've been able to uh, bring them together and you know I get some really moving letters from people um, uh, grateful for the interventions that my team have made Um, but it's also a role that um, has given me opportunities uh, internationally and I chaired the international committee of um, uh, privacy and data protection commissioners for three years um, just sort of accidentally 
Uh, and oh, that accidentally, was <laughs> you're always so humble. Well, How did it come about? Well, that was quite, yeah, well, it, it, it literally was accidental. I went to a meeting in Mauritius, uh, and we were on the committee uh, from my predecessor. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission of the United States was supposed to uh, step up and assume the chairmanship at that meeting, and uh, they had a change of policy, decided they weren't going to be able to um, do that and uh, I happened to be the last person standing so <laughs> rather than stepping forward it was a case of everybody else stepping back um, but that um, led me to uh, sort of have a, 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 a seat at the table you know the head table of conferences in uh, Morocco uh, Hong Kong and Amsterdam which was uh, it's really interesting. Wow that sounds like a fantastic opportunity chairing that international committee. Hmm. Uh, interesting you say the last person standing I mean that's often how local government feels in the work that we do which is defending councils when they get sued so often they are the last person standing and it's just uh, in your situation it was fortuitous and a great opportunity often for the council it's quite a bleak um, scenario when we're around the table just by ourselves so tell me a little bit about your team. You've obviously developed um, and grown the um, office since your tenure. I know you're very public and have a voice which I enjoy hearing on uh, national radio and in the media you've got a presence, John, and I congratulate you for that. So who sits behind John Edwards? Uh, I've got an excellent team of really dedicated people who mm. care about what they do. Um, there are. Uh, highly qualified and motivated uh, investigators, uh, all trained in dispute resolution. So when you get a call saying uh, we've got a complaint, uh, it'll be one of my team. Uh, don't be a, don't be frightened. They're very skilled. They know that you don't know the law like we do, uh, so they're here to help guide you through it. They need to find out the information, uh, and then they're going to try and communicate to you what the impact of the actions have been on an individual and what it will take. Uh, to fix it up. Um, so they are really, as I say, dedicated and skilled um, uh, and work in that field of uh, complaint investigation and inquiries. They're doing one thing at a time, so it's they're affecting the lives of an individual uh, and hopefully uh, improving the practice of uh, the agency concerned. Uh, then I have a team which is uh, dedicated to uh, policy work. So. Um, if a council writes to us and says, look, we're thinking of deploying some new technology um, that involves facial recognition, that policy team will have a look at that for you. We'll uh, talk about uh, the privacy impact assessments and how you can mitigate those. We uh, contribute to cabinet papers and provide comments on whether the um, matter being presented has adequately considered privacy matters. So that, that team also uh, very dedicated, uh, highly skilled at, in a slightly different way. They are um, uh, up to their elbows in the machinery of government uh, and uh, influencing things that can affect a large number of people. Uh, we've got a comms team uh, which has grown a lot since I got here because it's really important I think for us to make privacy easy for agencies. So we've got to really try and not just passively sit around in Wellington and wait for interested and motivated organisations to find us uh, and understand what their obligations are. We've got to go out to where people are, find them and say, hey, can we help? Here's some stuff that uh, we think might keep you out of trouble.
Um, so we are producing a lot of material. We're trying to strengthen our relationships with uh, communities who we see not properly represented in our workload, uh, communities of unmet need. Uh, so that'll be a big push for us in the next couple of years. Um, we've got a corporate support, you know, corporate services group, which maintains our infrastructure and provides all the admin support. You know, absolutely key as well. Uh, I've got a general counsel, uh, so our own dedicated in-house legal team. That uh, general counsel uh, reports to me directly uh, and manages uh, two lawyers, and they'll be adding a third. Um, and they work on our rulemaking functions, our codes of practice, and they provide a service uh, to the other uh, business parts of the organisation. Um, to those teams, we are just in the process of adding a compliance and monitoring team, compliance and enforcement. So um, that will be using the new powers under the 2020 Act uh, to be a bit more proactive and targeted uh, and to help us identify where to deploy those resources. I'm also recruiting a, um, a new assistant commissioner with the title of assistant commissioner uh, strategy and insights uh, and um, she's going to uh, bring some really good sort of horizon scanning uh, and data uh, interrogation skills to help us figure out how to best allocate the fairly modest modest resources we are allocated from um, uh, government. Mm, so, well, that's, a, that's quite the expanding team that you have described. Um, and, and congratulations, can I say to your comms team, because I went to a webinar a couple of days ago on the new Privacy Act. And when you say that you're you know, getting out there and disseminating the information, deploying people to do that out to the agencies and to the public, it was great to see that seminar for lawyers. Uh, and I'm sure in the local government space, am I right, that there may be some upcoming comms around the new Privacy Act for our council clients? Hmm. How are you getting the message out to local government? Well, I've always um, really enjoyed a close relationship with local government. For long before I was um, Privacy mm. Commissioner, uh, I was um, going around to councils and have very much enjoyed being in those communities uh, and working with people who are working with those communities. Um, I've, I've spoken just recently to ALGAM, the Association of Local Government Information Managers. Mm -hmm. uh, I will be talking to the Local Government Association and SOLGAM. Um, we have good relationships with those organisations. Um, but we're also uh, on a programme of regional visits. Uh, for the last five or six years, every month or six weeks or so, I go somewhere else in the country. Uh, and when I hit town, I try and find the big players. I'm always going to the DHB, try and find an uh, iwi representation, uh, what's the big business, uh, and always uh, we'll make it off to a local authority. So last week, uh, no, this week, I was in New Plymouth, nice. uh, and the New Plymouth District Council uh, hosted me uh, for a public event in the council chamber, and actually that was probably um, the most people I've seen in a room since lockdown, so it was really popular. No more than 100, though, because we New Zealand was in two at that stage. Uh, no, I think we were in one by then. Um, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, it would have, I don't think it would have been um, more than 100. Of course um, it didn't breach that, no, I know. But, um, uh, and then after the, the, that public session, um, 
all council staff came in and um, and that was really good. I quite enjoy seeing elected members as well mm. because uh, they um, quite often inadvertently represent quite a risk to local authorities and, and it's quite a management task for council staff so I like to be there to support them with some strong messaging and it was great when I was in Tauranga uh, uh, the week before uh, hosted there by the City Council, um, the Deputy Mayor came along as well and, um, and they've had some governance challenges as well mm. so um, it was great to be able to uh, give the privacy perspective on some of those issues. Mm. Well look can I say you know, thank you again for getting on the ground um, because that's definitely uh, the way that you operate and as um, you know, taxpayer and a ratepayer, I, I love to see an active you know, privacy commissioner who's got a, a, a strong voice and often you see your comments on different issues. The, um, the publicly available information that the Chinese government or agencies collected on some of our politicians and their families, uh, that was in the press a week or so ago, was that, did that touch on in your space at all? Well, uh, I guess generally it, it, it would. I was asked for comment and decided not to comment. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't really know much about mm -hmm. it beyond what was reported. Uh, I mean, it is the kind of thing that every government does. Um, I'm, I was obviously not important enough to be on the list. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask that. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, I decided to uh, defer on commenting on that one and leave that to um, the Security Intelligence Service and the academics who are uh, China watchers rather mm. than to contribute to that. Yeah. But as I say, every government uh, collects information about... Um, people of interest in their um, in, in other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. And so let's just touch on other jurisdictions. Perhaps before I do touch on other jurisdictions, something that occurred to me, communication is everything and the way that we get these messages out. What about, you know, Indigenous culture Māori? Like how, how do you do it? We'll deal with um, language difficulties for people who phone in. Um, I'm not suggesting Māori do. But yeah, how do you deal with language issues for people phoning in? Well, we um, hang on, scratch. I'm going to ask that question again. Sure. It came across a bit clunky. Um, right, so, yeah, we were up to. So, John, communication's key, and it is. Um, oh, I'll start again. John, communication's key. I wonder how you deal with different languages in our multicultural society and to what extent Māori is part of the Commission as well. Uh, thanks. Both uh, important questions and I'm not sure that we do either all that well. Uh, we're trying to improve. Um, in, in relation to multilingual uh, user communities, um, we do have access to uh, language line, the uh, interpreting service. Um, but I think the bigger problem is that um, a lot of ethnic communities are not getting in touch with us, which means that they're not aware of us, which means we're not reaching them. Mm. So we're hoping to remedy that when we launch a public awareness campaign uh, associated with the coming into force of the Privacy Act 2020. Uh, as to um, uh, our relations with Māori, again, I think that's not something that we've done as well as we should have. Uh, you know, as a government, um, you know, I'm an independent Crown entity, but of course still part of the executive. Uh, so we have responsibilities under Te Tiriti, uh, and uh, we need to engage with uh, treaty partners. Um, th there's also, um, you know, I've been working on this area of um, Whanangatanga 
sort of trying to understand uh, the the Maori worldview and uh, what Maori knowledge there mm. might be. And a lot of the concepts that we use in our practice, I think, are well suited to a Maori worldview. Uh, you know, we talk about personal information as being precious. It's a taonga. Uh, so I think it, you know, it, it, it is afforded treaty protection. Um, we are often required uh, to assess how a breach of privacy has affected someone's dignity or sense of self. So again, you've got this concept of mana, uh, which um, uh, can be evidence of harm. So I do think we've got uh, further to go there, um, but we are certainly uh, trying to uh, improve our reach into um, other language communities and our uh, links with um, Tangata Whenua. Thank you for that really comprehensive answer. So my view is that we're all leaders, you know, whether it's in our families, whether it's in our church, our communities, in our workplace, we are all leaders. And I'm interested in, with your uh, team structure, you know, how do you motivate and inspire your team to be the best version of themselves and to take on that leadership role? Um, Yeah, I think... I think leadership is undervalued in New Zealand. Uh, I think we are a nation of um, modest achievers, uh, mm. and if you if you self-describe as a leader, um, you know that's seen as um, blowing your own trumpet. You know, mm. there's the old Maori proverb: "A kumra does not sing about its sweetness." Um, <laughs> well, I may have mangled that, but um, you know, it, it is something that I've uh, tried to pay attention to. Um, because I am in a position of leadership uh, and as such I have a responsibility to discharge that. So last year I actually participated in a course at Oxford called the Oxford Advanced Management and Leadership Programme. But I think a lot of leadership is uh, giving people space to uh, shine and to thrive and giving them a licence and autonomy to do that. Um, And that's what I try to do here. I mean, I try and set um, some really clear values uh, and uh, try and uh, remind our staff why we're here, which is to serve individual New Zealanders uh, and to promote and protect privacy. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I still have a lot to learn about leadership, um, but uh, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's something that I think is very important. Well, I just think the mere fact that you say you've still got a lot to learn means you probably know a lot more than you let on. Um, You are humble. Uh, Talk to me about the Privacy Commissioners overseas because we've all got plenty to learn and there's such, you know, diversity different jurisdictions. Are there any international Privacy Commissioners that you particularly network with and align with? Yeah, I I think... um Probably um, it will not surprise anyone to hear that I have very strong connections with our sort of traditional allies, which uh, I guess, uh, you know, where we have a sort of common history. So uh, I'm quite close to the UK Information Commissioner, who is uh, Elizabeth Denham. She comes from Canada, uh, and we have a great affinity with our Canadian colleagues as well. Uh, I um, have a lot of time for uh, my Irish counterpart, um, mm. Helen Dixon, um, a lot of the largest tech companies in the world, 
choose to base themselves in Ireland. So that data protection office is, is very influential. Uh, but of course, proximity is important as well. And um, uh, I work closely with our Australian counterpart, uh, Angeline Falk, who's um, the uh, Australian Information Commissioner. Um, and, you know, I build quite strong personal relationships with a range of other commissioners, um, such as uh, my colleague in the Philippines, um, who's a relatively newcomer to the field, but, um, uh, you know, we've worked very well together on our executive committee. So, yeah, I, I mean, we learn from each other, we observe each other, we rely on each other's um, investigations uh, into uh, organisations uh, that uh, might affect New Zealanders as well. Mm. And are they are they interested in the new Privacy Act? Is our legislation, our new Act 2020, modelled on one of those particular jurisdictions? Uh, no, it's um, most Privacy Acts and data protection laws around the world have a common origin in principles set out by the OECD in 1980. So there's that kind of genetic link that goes back. Uh, but there's no single jurisdiction that the 2020 amendments apply to. The biggest new innovation in the Privacy Act 2020 is um, mandatory privacy breach notification. Uh, and most of the other countries that we um, uh, compare ourselves to uh, have had mandatory breach notification rules uh, for quite a lot longer than we have. Uh, in the US, every single state has a, a separate rule on uh, breach notification. Uh, so that's it's good to sort of finally catch up on that one. Um, but a lot of uh, authorities in who, who follow the European model, uh, which um, is the General Data Protection Regulation or the GDPR, have quite muscular regulatory approaches. Uh, and um, you know, they treat privacy from a human rights lens rather than this sort of more consumer-oriented lens, which is the uh, more US-based approach, and we are a kind of hybrid of both. Um, but uh, in Europe, they have these quite significant powers to issue fines. So if you're a business in Europe, you can be fined 4% um, of your global turnover or 20 million euros, whichever is the greater. Um, we don't have anything like that here. Has anybody been fined 20 million euros? Uh, well, the... Information Commissioner in Europe, uh, in uh, the UK, issued a 180 million pound fine against British Airways. Um, so, uh, and I know that um, Google has been issued with fines by the French. And yeah, so these they are being issued. I mean, there are some lobby groups and uh, interest groups, uh, civil society groups, who believe that um, those powers are not being used enough uh, and there are other industry groups which say um, they are being overused so I guess you know, the balance is probably about right. So our act is playing catch up in some respects yes. and then in terms of the fines we are in a completely different league to Europe uh, in terms of the, the, the amount of fines. Talk to me about that, what, why are the fines, tell us what they, I mean I know what they are but tell, tell the listeners what they are and, sure. and why are they so low? Well we, we we don't. It's it's a different regulatory model, mm -hmm. and you know in and I you know many listeners will know that I advocated for those uh, fining powers uh, and lost that battle, uh, and having done so, I need to sort of switch to how do we yes. most effectively use the tools that Parliament has uh, granted my office. So I'm going to do that, uh, and as part of that reflection, I'll I'll point out that you know fines don't necessarily. Um, 
uh, act uh, to change behaviour. So mm-hmm. we do need to use the whole range of tools. For example, the FTC issued a fine last year of $5 billion against Facebook. And the day that fine was issued, Facebook's share price um, peaked, you know, spiked. So, um, uh, and, and there was no sign of any real change in the conduct of, or the business model um, which had led to the, uh, to the enforcement action there. Uh, so fines don't necessarily affect conduct. I think it, th- there's an increasing kind of um, consumer sensitivity to privacy issues in New Zealand. Um, so we will be empowered to issue compliance notices. And that's something that I think many local authorities are quite familiar with as a regulatory tool. Mm. Um, if a company does not comply with a compliance notice, I can seek to have that enforced in the Human Rights Review Tribunal. And if it's, uh, uh, if it's not complied with after that, uh, we can seek fines of up to $10,000. Mm-hmm. Good. You know, it's, um, tell me, what are the tools that you think will particularly help our council clients in the new legislation? Um, well, certainly I think the mandatory breach notification requirements are something that provide an opportunity for councils to really examine and learn from near misses. So they're going to need to put in place uh, processes which encourage staff to report where something's gone wrong with personal information. Uh, they might have had a, 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 a ransomware attack which has locked up their systems and means that people aren't able to access their personal information. They may have lost a USB stick, they may have um, had a website hacked or something. So uh, if staff are encouraged to report these to a risk and audit committee or to an uh, in-house council, um, that's a really valuable opportunity whether it becomes a reportable matter or not it's a really valuable opportunity for that person to do a root cause analysis and report back out to the organization hey this nearly happened because someone sent a spreadsheet Mm. containing a whole lot of personal information to more people than it should have so new policy if you're gonna send a spreadsheet of personal information to anyone uh, to more than five people you've got a I don't know check in with somebody else before you press send or something like that whatever the measures are so that we learn from these and uh, gradually improve the level of compliance and really uh, reinforce and embed that culture of respect for personal information. So if the councils want some assistance with putting in place those processes to make sure that they're complying with the new legislation is there a particular, do they just ring the helpline or is there a particular avenue for them to... Well, our, our website has lots of resources and, and we've invested heavily in um, online training resources. Mm-hmm. When I first came to the office, we would offer a workshop um, once a month or something, get 20 people around a table, which meant that we could uh, train about uh, 200 people a year. Well, we're getting thousands of people going through our online training courses. Uh, that we've developed with Learning Works in Waikato. Uh, so we bring the subject matter expertise, Learning Works brings the pedagogical, educational expertise, and we have these products that um, are really good at uh, raising awareness. So if you go onto our website, privacy.org.nz, and look for online resources, um, you'll be able to sign up. If you're a lawyer or an accountant, you'll get CPD points for the time it takes you. Uh, and, you know, I think. Um, 
just one thing, if you wanted to do one thing to prepare for uh, the Privacy Act 2020, uh, make everyone in your organisation do the Privacy ABC module. So that's just the lowest level of awareness. It doesn't mention a section number or a legal concept. It's just getting people in the zone of thinking about respecting personal information. For those who want a deeper dive, we've got Privacy 101. Uh, and for people who are already familiar with privacy but want to know uh, what these changes are, we've got a module there called Privacy Act 2020. And it'll step you through uh, the new obligations uh, and powers and uh, the differences between the Privacy Act 2020 and 1993. Fantastic. And tell me, do you have to pay for those workshops? No, those are free. Oh, really? Yep, they're oh, free and you uh, just sign up, uh, do them in your own time. If people have their own in-house personal, you know, professional development courses and platforms and they want to put our content on them, get in touch with us. We're happy to arrange for that. Fabulous. That's really, really good. Okay, so looking forward, uh, you know, the next five years, I know that um, there's going to be different issues facing local government. Um, leaders debate, you know, this week, they talked about climate change. Well, that isn't typically on the platform, wasn't last, last election uh, during those debates on television. What do you predict will be the local government hot topics um, in your privacy space? Um, in the privacy space, gosh, <laughs> it's it's hard to know. Um, uh, you know, predictions, as someone once famously said, are very difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I've got a crystal ball, and you just have a look into that, John, and yeah, just tell us. Well, you know, we, like fools, started 2020 with a work plan. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, our ability to see the future... Um, showed the folly of that. Um, you know, I think there is an increasing democratization of technology, uh, which means that, um, you know, anyone can um, build a website or access a facial recognition app or, you know, just, we've got this, this retail digital industry that means um, mm. uh, people can expose themselves to risk. You know, I've been talking about the um, uh, TUIA 250 breach, uh, which was a really interesting one. Uh, they built a website to promote, Ministry of Culture and Heritage built a website to promote the commemorations between uh, Cook and um, Tangata Whenua. Uh, but, you know, as I say, this democratization means anybody can build a website, but it's the same rule mm -hmm. as applies to novels. You know, there's an old saying, everyone of us has got a novel inside of us most of us should leave it there. Um, and when they built this website uh, to act as a bulletin board, um, uh, they just patched it together. Um, they sidestepped all the usual uh, procurement, government procurement processes and security checks and so on, which was fine because it was just a notice board. But then when somebody had the idea that it could be used to... Um, uh, run a competition for people who wanted to paddle a walker out to meet one of the replica vessels, uh, someone said, oh, we can just put a plug-in on the website and collect that. Well, a few months later, somebody rang up and uh, Culture and Heritage and said, someone's just tried to use my son's driver's license to fraudulently obtain credit, and your promotion is the only place he's ever used it. So they did a security review uh, and they... Um, 
found that fortunately there hadn't been a security breach uh, because for there to be a security breach, you need to have security. Right, uh, so they had no security. <laughs> so the plugin that they'd used simply uh, uploaded Ooh. 300 passports, driver's licenses, even firearms licenses to public-facing uh, platform that could be searched. So all those documents were just there available. So, you know, councils um, should be a little bit wary of technological solutions uh, and should... Uh, uh, put them through a process of privacy impact assessment. Uh, councils will be increasingly wanting to digitise their business processes uh, and they should be mindful of the privacy risks. I mean, in my experience, most local authorities are wanting to um, best meet the needs of their communities uh, in the most efficient way possible to reduce rates. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a number of ways of doing that. So, for example, if you want to make uh, make it easy for people to search their building consent records. Uh, you can make that available online. But you can choose whether the access point is the address of the building uh, or whether you just, as some councils have done, enter a six-month date range and suck out every document uh, from the system. So there are, you know, there are privacy choices that you make in these um, uh, technology designs which um, you know, should be made explicit and in consultation with the community. Mm. And it's that end-to-end -end consideration, isn't it? Because you can have great ideas, but it's the implementation of them. You know what the problem is, you know what the solution is, particularly in this environment. It's a, a lot of it is about expenditure, uh, and you want to cut your expenditure. Yeah, so of it's the implementation, how do you go about that, and to, to keep in line with the Privacy Act. So with COVID, John, I imagine that um, it has added to your workload, am I right? Yes, it has, uh, quite considerably. Um, we've had uh, complaints. We've tried to work with government uh, as governments scrambled to get a coordinated response. Um, we've worked with the Ministry of Health on its um, uh, COVID tracer app. Uh, and of course, the private sector threw up a whole lot of um, uh, options to assist business to meet these obligations they hadn't ever faced before. Uh, and they made some uh, errors there. So, for example, we um, decided to do a sort of consumer rating of a whole lot of different um, contact tracer apps that the private sector had been offering. And we decided we'd, we'd put happy face or sad face emojis on them, depending on how privacy friendly they were. And we were just about ready to, um, to roll this out and get some good press on it. Um, and I kind of realised, oh, well, I'm a statutory officer, and if I put a sad face emoji on someone, that's a, uh, an adverse comment about their product. So we should give them the opportunity to comment first. So for each uh, product that we had rated poorly, uh, we told them why we had done that uh, and gave them the opportunity to comment, and every single one of them said, uh, okay, well, we'll fix it. So we didn't get the nice little graphic that we were hoping for, uh, but we actually improved privacy for these products. So one of them, for example, um, required uh, patrons uh, at, the, at the hospitality business to scan their identity documents and the app then emailed that to the bar. Well, you know, bars shouldn't be keeping that kind mm. of information, we told them that. Another one had a field where it collected um, a motor vehicle uh, registration number and we're like, really? Why? Mm. You know, you don't need it. So um, that was a useful process. Thank you for looking after our personal data. <laughs> ah, you're most welcome. <laughs> if only I could do more. Oh, well, I hear... Well, tell me about the mayor and Facebook and posting about 
DHB? Oh, well, that, I, I think if you're talking about the COVID uh, case, mm, I, I, I yes. have, um, I launched a, an inquiry. Um, we had a couple of issues about the distribution of COVID diagnostic information. Uh, and in the course of that inquiry, um, somebody wrote to me uh, and gave me her personal experience of having been outed as um, having the disease. It was very moving. Um, you can read that report on our website. But um, it, it's a really salutary tale for local authorities as well because, um, you know, a lot of local authorities put a lot of pressure on DHBs to find out what, you know, where the disease was in their communities. Um, and the DHBs, to their credit, I think resisted and said, well, you don't actually need to know that. Um, but in this case, um, a, mayor, a DHB told the mayor of the region um, we've got COVID in these places. Uh, and he posted it on his Facebook page. Uh, and there was one town, um, didn't identify anybody. Uh, but the next week, the Ministry of Health um, said, uh, or identified that the region had been affected by a cluster associated with the Hereford Breeders Conference. Now, everyone in that community went, okay, there's only one Hereford breeder in that town, uh, so it must be them. Uh, so they were identified, it was a family. Um, they were subjected to uh, vilification on social media. Um, they felt ostracized in their community. They had to ask permission from the local cop to travel 50 kilometers to the next town so they could do their shopping. And then mm. long after they had recovered from the disease, uh, they were subjected to the indignity of having medical procedures performed in the car park of the medical center because mm. of the fear and ignorance associated with the disease. Uh, so, you know, this poor family had to cope with not only the illness uh, and, you know, being very sick, but also that sense of um, being turned on by their community. I mean, they did get a lot of support from some quarters, but uh, just found it really upsetting that, um, you know, they were the subject of gossip and rumor and uh, ignorance and fear. So it was wrong to do the posting on the Facebook site? Yeah, I mean, in that case, I, I guess I have some sympathy for the local government politician involved because he didn't know that in posting that location, another piece of information mm. would be added later that would lead to that identification. Um, but it really does show how cautious we need to be, even when we think we're not disclosing mm. uh, identifiable information. Mm. So, John, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been fabulous chatting to you. I could keep the questions rolling. You are a busy person. We need you on the coalface. You're looking after our personal information, and for that I say thank you. I was going to talk to you about your interest outside work, but when I was chatting to you before we started recording and you said skydiving and international hostage negotiation, I, I knew for a fact that this is not the case. So is there anything that you can share outside work that might be true, well, not fictitious? Um, I really love uh, getting out into the environment uh, and tramping, and I've been in every district in this country um, and I just love uh, going with my sons and Sarah and uh, heading into the hills um, which is lucky because we can't go anywhere else these days. <laughs> I was thinking that. Um, I like to hear local music uh, which is also fortunate given that there's no international uh, live gigs at the moment um, but uh, yeah that kind of thing eating good local produce. 
beautiful and last question any book highlight that you've read of late that you can share I really liked um, well so for non-fiction I read a sort of life-changing book called Thinking Fast and Slow mm. by Daniel Kahneman uh, and it really uh, was revelatory about the limitations of this sloshing grey matter between our ears uh, and our ability to um, make rational choices and rational decisions uh, and some of the cognitive biases which um, get in the way of um, us uh, making rational choices. Mm. And it goes some way to explain, I think, some of the phenomena that we see in the world of um, uh, you know, conspiracy theories and mm. anti-vax and those sorts of very harmful things. Um, they are contrary to logic and science, uh, and it's a puzzle why people would hold those beliefs. But um, the book offered some insights into that. Mm. Oh, look, thank you very much, John. Thanks for chatting today. All the best. Thanks, Helen. See ya. Thanks, John, for taking the time to speak with Helen. And to everyone who's listened to this podcast and for everyone who's just supported us over this past 12 months, thank you so much. It means so much to us uh, to have an amazing local government client base like we do. Uh, and we hope you all have a restful summer break with your families and you come back recharged for 2021. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you all in the new year. Uh, plenty more podcast episodes to come and we're really going to um, put a lot of emphasis on this next year uh, to just really try and bring our local government community together. So thanks everyone. Merry Christmas. See you on the flip side.